Hello and welcome back to God's Own Scale Podcast, where the smaller it is, the bigger the reward. I am Sean Clark, your host. This is the first episode of Season 3 of the podcast. How exciting. It's Episode 37 overall. This season, I'm shaking things up a bit, but not too much. Hopefully enough to keep you interested and engaged. I've hinted at it uh, for a while now, but Season 3 seems the ideal opportunity to put my plans into action. Firstly, and most importantly probably, is that I'll be expanding the podcast out to any scale below 19mm, or size. I know 19mm isn't a scale. There is plenty of coverage for scales larger than this, but not much else covering the other smaller scales, like 10, 12, 8, 2, 3, uh, and 15 mils. While 6mm will continue to be a big part of the podcast, I'm hoping that a fresh look at some other scales will be of interest to some of the listeners, and let's face it, who amongst us plays in one scale only. Secondly, I'm looking at doing some themed episodes around either a hobby topic, such as painting, wargame shows, or terrain, for example, as well as historical themes, which might be a specific battle or period, and this very episode is a case in point. So, not huge changes, but I am conscious that a lot of my followers are here for 6mm content alone, and should you not be interested in this wider hobby content, I fully understand. However, I do have to go where my own interests and instincts take me, and I'm hoping to grow the podcast as a result by capturing a larger part of the hobby community, and I would be really pleased if you joined me on that journey. I am truly grateful as ever to all of my Patreons who've kept the lights on here at God's Own Scale Towers. And again, I feel, if you feel you can no longer support the podcast because of the shift in focus, I really do understand. Thank you once again for the support you provided up to now. But all the same hope that you will uh, continue with me on this journey with the podcast as we grow and uh, move through Season 3 the rest of you this year and into next. Speaking of patrons, another new feature will be a Patreon-exclusive live stream paint and chat session by YouTube. This will be hosted on my YouTube channel, Billy Goat Wargaming, not God's Own Scales TV. My YouTube efforts are going to concentrate on the Billy Goat Wargaming channel now. However, my video skills are even worse than my podcasting skills, so please don't come with high expectations for the sort of content you'll see there. Uh, But the live stream painted chat is something just about within my capabilities. So more on that soon. But I am hoping to get the first one in the diary for the end of September, beginning of October, somewhere around there. If you're not a patron, don't worry. The video will be released shortly after the live broadcast for you all to hopefully enjoy. Okay, I think that's enough breaking news and bombshells for today. Today's episode is a Gettysburg special, a subject close to my heart. And joining me on this episode, I have two of my American friends from Little Wars TV, Greg Wagman and Tony Morano, 
who've both appeared before with me on the show. So settle back, grab your favourite beverage, and let's get this show on the road. Okay, uh, welcome to episode 37 of God's Own Scale podcast, the first of season three. How exciting. And uh, to say I am excited is an understatement because I have two experts uh, on a subject very dear to my heart, the Battle of Gettysburg, which is the subject of this conversation. Um, I searched far and wide through academia, through YouTube, through local associations, and uh, I was offered up two experts on the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, both happen to be members of Little Wars TV. I've got Mr. Greg Wagman. Hello, Greg. How are you? Great to be with you, Sean. Thank you. And uh, t- Mr. Tony Morano uh, for his second visit to the podcast. How are you, Tony? Good. And yourself? I, <laughs> I, I'm very well. After the initial uh, IT issues that we experienced um i'm so relieved that the the tin cans have stretched across the atlantic and i am super excited to meet the experts this evening myself Um. (laughs) (laughs) i I, i've got news for you tony (laughs) Uh uh-oh i'm i am in the presence of greatness i'm in the presence of people who've refought this battle on the tabletop at least twice that i've seen maybe more and uh, live live not a million miles away from the battlefield itself. So, you two are my subject matter experts today. Oh boy! <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> so, um, first of all, welcome, gentlemen. Thanks very much for giving up your time once again to join me on the God's Own Scale podcast. Uh, Greg, I think this might be number three for you. Yep, I'm going for a record here, Sean. I think uh, at the moment I'm going to be tied with, I believe that somebody else is battling me for the all-time record. So um, yeah, let's, let's work be... on putting me over the top here, buddy. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and Tony, you're coming up on the inside rails here. and uh, making Yeah, it second time. <laughs> yeah. If I do one more, it'll be more than my number of marriages. <laughs> <laughs> it's a useful gauge. It's a useful gauge, isn't it? Marriages, uh, but but we shan't talk about marriages um, because I'd be here all night. Um, so <laughs> this is uh, the first episode of uh, season three of the God's Own Scale podcast, and in the introduction, I, I've discussed the um, 
the rethink that I've had over the off season where I'm going to be expanding the horizons of the podcast. Six mil is still a passion of mine, absolutely, but I just want to broaden the horizons of the podcast and, and just look at the wider hobby. And uh, one of those um, things that I want to be talking about is is battles from history. Uh, and which is why Tony and Greg are with me today, because Gettysburg and the American Civil War are very dear to my heart. I've spoken about it many times uh, on the podcast. I have a huge now collection of painted American Civil War figures in six mil with flags, Greg, with flags. Very impressive. <laughs> it did take me a while to get all those uh, flags attached, but they are now flagged up. And um, part of this... Uh, uh, an occasional series is going to be talking about the great battles from history and uh, maybe a contentious subject uh, to do with that battle and then how we might go on to game it. So I couldn't have two more um, appropriate people to join me. So first of all, um, maybe if I start with you, Greg, um, Battle of Gettysburg, um, how long have you been interested in it and uh, how many times have you gamed it? <laughs> Ooh, okay. So let's see. How long have I been interested? I don't even know how old I was. Um, luckily, my dad was always very interested in military history, and he took me to a number of battlefields and was lucky to live less than an hour from Gettysburg. So we, we went to Gettysburg before I can even remember, and I've been there countless times. Uh, so I've long been interested from my childhood, and, and my dad didn't have a deep knowledge of Gettysburg, but he knew enough to tell me some stories, and as, as a kid, that's, that's I think, what gets you fired up. You know, my dad was into it, so I was into it. Yeah. Uh, and a little bit more recently, I, I was uh, had the opportunity to work there as a, a summer seasonal. Uh, the Gettysburg Park staff calls their uh, college interns seasonals because you work there for a summer, and you get paid by the park service and you have the opportunity to lead some tours there so so we're now stretching back quite a ways because i i fear that my college days are uh over a decade behind me but a decade ago a decade ago i did have the opportunity to work at the park uh which yeah. which was a really interesting experience and certainly we've been gaming gettysburg as a club oh for for more than a decade we've played the entire battle at least twice maybe maybe three times actually uh and we've played pieces of the battle many more times than that i think the most recent one we did tom ran uh the rule set pickets charge uh two fat lardies ricewitz press um that's a, a dave brown rule set and uh, he did the first day at gettysburg uh, just sort of the first half of the first day really uh, Buford's cavalry action and a little bit of Reynolds coming up. So that, that I think was our most recent foray, but uh, there have been many. And that's part of what makes Gettysburg such a great battle. I mean, it's a, it's a three-day engagement. So if you're feeling really ambitious, you can do the entire battle. You could just take a day or you could zoom in even farther. You know, we've done, you know, just the peach orchard and there's all these great vignettes from all over the battle. So that's one of the reasons why it's a, it's been a favorite of mine. And I know it's uh, long been a favorite of Tony's as well. That's uh, one of the only things he and I share in common. <laughs> uh, Tony, <laughs> uh, that's a nice segue, Greg. Thank you very much uh, to bring before, Tony into the conversation. Before you get to me, I, Greg, you need to recount the story of the person asking about the monuments on the battlefield. 
Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I've got a lot of stories that happened at that battlefield. A lot of ghost hunters who visited. I got some good ghost yeah. hunter stories. But the story that Tony is referring to was uh, certainly an all-time favorite. It's it's a low. It's a low point for sure in human history. Uh, I was doing a Pickett's Charge tour, which was my main tour that I did. It's like a 90-minute Pickett's Charge third-day tour. And um, one afternoon we're out there, and a lady who... I don't remember exactly how old she was, but I would say, you know, 30s, 30s, 40s, asked um, what process the park had used to restore the monuments. And I said, well, what do you mean restore them? Uh, I mean, there there are cleanings that occur. Uh, But she said, no, she was surprised given the volume of fire that I was describing on the third day that there wouldn't have been more damage to them from the battle. (laughs) And... Of course, I thought she was kidding, obviously. And, and several people on the tour, I re- recall laughing openly, but she was serious. Deadly and serious. Yeah. had not yeah. fully processed that these were placed <laughs> after the battle. So, uh, yeah, it was... That's a difficult you, concept. A it difficult was, concept. yeah, that, that summer was a real eye-opener in terms of the, wow. uh, <laughs> the level wow. of historical knowledge of the average American. Right, okay. So so when you're pitching these tours uh, to the, the tour groups, you, you sort of have to go in low, do you? I guess? You, 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 gotta, you gotta go in real low. Although, you know, I mean, you could have 30, 40 people in a group, and it isn't, you get the full gambit. I mean, there are people in every group who are deeply knowledgeable about Gettysburg. So you're dealing with all all ends of the spectrum when you're leading a tour like that. Yeah. You get Scott Mingus in there as a ringer. <laughs> oh yeah you get plenty of people in there who want to question you and you know they want to sort of prove that they know more than you do and i'm sure some of them did know more than i i did i mean there's some true yeah. true experts out there but the average uh the average person was uh definitely on the the lower end of the spectrum maybe not quite as bad as that lady i think she was she was a special case yeah she takes the biscuit by the sounds of it um tony then so for yourself how did you first become interested in the battle um, my second grade class field trip was to the Gettysburg battlefield. And we spent the day, um, with, on a guided tour of the battlefield. And in those days they had a number of steel observation towers. If you were willing to climb the five, six flights of stairs and look out on the battlefield and in the middle of the tower, there was a round, almost like sundial thing where if you look here and sight down that point at the other end, this is where the event depicted on the face of the dial actually occurred. You're looking at the spot. Um, I won't mention how long ago that was. Um, I will mention that Nixon was still president. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was it was well, a little bit ago. But yeah. I... um ever since then, to discover that such a monumental battlefield was 35, 40 miles from home was just, you know, to a, what are you in second grade, eight-year-old boy or whatever I was at the time, just the, to discover that this titanic cataclysmic event happened for all intents and purposes right down the road from where I grew up was just, it boggled my little mind. Um, And from there it was the Avalon Hill um, 
Gettysburg game, the 76 edition that had the gorgeous map board in full color with all the elevation. Um, and, oh God, I terrible swift sword and um, the rest of the SPI games. And if I look on my shelf, I have even now probably four different Gettysburg games. And then, of course, the miniatures thing. And we've done six millimeter and 15 millimeter Gettysburg and bits and pieces of the battle over the years. And yeah, Greg, I, we've done the whole battle at least twice. The thing for the students or scouts, did that was, I don't remember, was that the whole battle as well? Uh, no, they they only, I think, were able to get through the first day and a half when uh, Tom and, and Dieter went out to run that at the battlefield. And doing the whole battle of Gettysburg is, it's a labor of love. If you're not a, if you're not a Civil War gamer, if you're not fascinated by Gettysburg, doing a three-day Civil War battle on the tabletop for people who aren't totally on board is i'm sure a drain yeah <laughs> well I, i'll be finding this out because um I, I have sufficient forces now to fight the ultra freedom uh, scenario um and i am intending to play the whole thing uh with the night movements and repositioning between the days etc nice um it it may t I, and there are at least two other guys at my club who will invest themselves into that battle to the maximum. Um, but uh, yes, it, it it's going to be interesting. It's going to be. I'm quite nervous about it, to be honest. <laughs> I hope you've set aside a good amount of time for that. Well, yeah, it'll be a weekend game. I good, think we've, good. we've got access to the club premises over the weekend. So, um, Antietam comes first, but we're here to talk about Gettysburg and. Um, the you've mentioned several other rule sets there that have been used, but ultra freedom is for me. And Greg, you might just need to close your ears on this because your head may swell. <laughs> ultra freedom is the, is the set of American set of sorry, the set of American Civil War rules that I've been looking for for thirty years. I think um, that just are going to enable me to fight these huge battles. But Gettysburg is bad across the pond. I'm afraid so, Tony. <laughs> I mean, there's there's something called Fire and Fury as well, but you know, <laughs> it, which is a brilliant set of rules. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 absolutely the set of rules that will allow me to fight those those iconic battles of the Americans of War, and oh, there's nothing will, and there's nothing more iconic than Gettysburg. Um, I I uh, I've fought it, refought it several times as well uh, at my club, but um, never in its entirety. Always uh, the first day or a, the round tops or a, a small aspect of it. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to that. Well, it is if you're going to try and do the whole thing, which is a holy grail, I think, for a lot of war gamers. Yeah. Um, you, you really are pretty limited in the rule sets that can do that. I mean, it, it's a a massive three-day battle. So realistically, <laughs> what are, unless you want to invest an entire week into playing this, which is going to just drain everybody, I think you're 
you're fairly limited. Uh, Altar of Freedom was written for that purpose. Uh, yeah. Volley and Bayonet, which inspired a lot of the work on Altar of Freedom, I think uh, is you know fast enough playing that I think you yes. could use Volley and Bayonet to do all three days. But other than that, I, I I'm not really sure what you would even use as a rule set to do the entire battle. Yeah, I mean this board the board game approach isn't there, but if, if we're looking at tabletop miniatures, I, I agree. Um and and but the the math, the systems within Ultra Freedom um just allow that, don't they? They allow that progress the the hour long turns, uh the fact that you can roll over from one day into the next without having to stop and reset. All of it is there, isn't it, provided within the rules, which I haven't seen in Volume Bane. It, that, that may exist, I don't know, but it, it's there as a complete package. Yeah, Volley and Bayonet, and Tony, I know, he's he's played it a number of times as well. Um, one of the things that I loved about that game is that the combat system and the movement system are very, very simple, which if you're going to play any battle the size of Gettysburg, and there are plenty of them throughout, you know, military history, you really do need a set of rules that you can <laughs> move very quickly through yeah. combats because there's going to be a lot of combats. Uh, and that that was something that had always appealed to me about Volley and Bayonet. What I hated about Volley and Bayonet is that there is zero command and control system. It's a frictionless yes. system. So any order that you want to issue to a brigade is going to happen. It's I go, you go, you do everything that you want. And that just never sat well with me for a lot of these big battles because, as I'm sure we will get into in this discussion, there is a lot of command friction that happens at Gettysburg on oh, both yes. sides. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think back in the notes in the back, Frank Chadwick talks about um, the lack of friction rules. And his position was that because all the friction rules tend to feel artificial, at least in some circumstances that if you want to create command friction, you just have to run multiplayer games. And I think you and I will confirm from uh, the first full battle of Gettysburg um, at Steve's house. Yeah. Issuing orders to your buddies and trying to be clear about what was supposed to happen. And then, watching it not pan out that way. Um, I, I think multiplayer games and not just Gettysburg, but any game, if you want to get real command friction and not something created by rules, you simply need a, a, a multiplayer game because everybody has in their own mind. I know what my orders are, but I know what I could do instead. And I, I think that creates that, 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 moment of what the just happened yeah yeah absolutely and i know that there's at least two uh refights that you guys have been involved in on youtube which i'll put in the show notes so um the first one was pre little wars tv if i believe if i remember right is that right greg yes it was several several years pre little wars tv yeah but you were both involved, weren't you? I think you. Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and what role did you play, Tony? In that I played General Lee. I thought so. Yes, <laughs> right. The role and Tony was born to play. 
<laughs> losing that battle over and over again. <laughs> Um, and then the second version, which was part of Little Wars TV, was something special entirely, wasn't it? Yes, and that was my turn to lose as General Lee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do, do you want to just, uh, for people who may not know what I'm referring to when I say it was special, just, um, and I'll put up a link to this episode in the show notes, just tell the listeners uh, why, why that refight was so special. Take it away, Tony. Uh, It was fought at Gettysburg in Lee's headquarters across the street from the Lutheran Seminary, Uh, which, you know, as a gamer, as a Civil War gamer, as a Gettysburg buff, to stand there in Lee's headquarters looking at the map of Gettysburg and pushing your troops around to engage the Union. Um, that's just a history geek's wet dream. It really is. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, it was incredible. And, and for anyone listening who has the opportunity and, and wants to try to go there, um, Lee's headquarters is sometimes open. It is not actually part of the park yet. It was purchased by the American Battlefield Trust. And as of this recording, they still own that building. But um, it's my understanding that at some point in the future, they are intending to convey that to the park, at which point, hopefully it'll be open year round and everybody will be able to go inside. It is a very small building, very unimpressive and has extremely poor lighting, which was a bit of a difficulty for filming our war game. But uh, 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 just being able to go inside, it's it's one of those things where you just the hair stands up on the back of your neck. It's like, wow, I'm. I'm in, you can just feel the history in there is, it was pretty cool. Yeah. We, um, not only did we play the game there, I had pizza. I had a slice of pepperoni pizza in Lee's headquarters while pretending to be one of Lee's lieutenants and <laughs> leading the troops into battle. I just, well, listen, you've made it in life at that point. You know. Oh, I, I, it will be a couple of years because the first one isn't due until the end of this year, but someday I will tell that story to my grandchildren. Um, and that's probably when they'll decide I can't be living on my own anymore. <laughs> and mightily bored LB to quote right. the end of the film. Yes. Right. <laughs> but um, so that, that particular version of the refight was involved the battlefield trust, didn't it? It did. Yes. Yeah. We we got to play uh, against uh, Gary Edelman, who's the chief historian for the American Battlefield Trust. Uh, he was Meade, and uh, he had uh, he had some other historians along with along with him there. Uh, one of whom uh, I believe is the curator of the Lutheran Seminary uh, Museum. So uh, it was it was a neat uh, experience pitting three war gamers against three historians. And you know I don't know if we got into this too much in the video, but. We did have two members of our club who were acting as advisors for the historians because, you know, they, they didn't have any wargaming experience. Yes. Uh, so it, it would have been awfully unfair if we had just beat up on them. So uh, they, they did have a little bit of help playing the game and, uh, you know, going through the mechanics of the rules. But they made all their own command decisions and uh, they had a great time doing it. And it was made for a really special event. I've rarely been as jealous uh, of watching uh, of anything in life, actually, uh, 
regardless of what it is, whether it's financial or some some guy's car. I've rarely been as jealous as you guys playing that game in in that location. I would have I would have uh, swum the Atlantic, I think, to to have gotten there to to play that. But uh, that was on a uh, custom built field, wasn't it? As well, I think you did a um, a video on how you built that field. Yes, that's right. Um, custom tabletop. I think it was about eight feet by five feet. Built that in two se- two sections, and there there is a video uh, for it. Uh, yeah, I, I love the way it turned out, and it was, of course, done in God's own scale. I mean, that goes yes. without saying. We we awesome. gamed it in, in six millimeter uh, both times that we gamed the battle that we're yeah. talking about here. We're in six millimeter. As but, decent Christian men should. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. A- absolutely. And I believe Pickett's Charge, uh, the game I mentioned earlier that uh, we ran somewhat recently that Tom did with uh, for the first day, uh, he also ran that in 6mm, although his figures are based a little bit differently uh, on sm- much smaller bases, which is, I think, you know, more appropriate for a rule set like Pickett's Charge, or so a lower yes. level of command. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll perhaps come back on to uh, talking about uh, how we can game Gettysburg, uh, perhaps a bit later on. But um, I'm, I'm sure most of the people listening to this episode will have a rough idea of what happened at Gettysburg, even if it's only through the uh, the film uh, with Martin Sheen and Tom <laughs> Berenger. <laughs> now, obviously, the history in that may, may be a little bit wonky, but... And the beard. Um, and the and the and the accents actually. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm I'm a, a British person, but some of those southern accents seemed uh, a bit dodgy to me. But um, but there's a question that has long been on my lips, gentlemen. Having watched the Ken Burns documentary uh, countless countless times to the point where. I, I can recite great great tracks of it, and I'm sure you're both familiar with uh, the Civil War documentary by uh, Ken Burns. I've heard of it. You've heard of it, yes. <laughs> it's it's just about the best television I think I've, I've ever seen. Um, Shelby Foote, who who is a regular contrib- uh, who is a frequent contributor in that documentary series, made a, made a statement, and I, I wanted to just throw it out to you, gentlemen, and just see where you stood. Um, uh, and whether you agreed with this statement or not, but it amounted to the fact that um, he he considered Gettysburg as the price that the South paid for having Robert E. Lee in command. Um, maybe if I can come to you first, Greg. Have you heard that statement before, and have you got any opinion on it? Well, you know I have an opinion, Sean. Uh, and, and of course, I've heard that is a, a, a well-trod uh, question and a very provocative one. And I think it's a great conversation starter. And um, I think it's worth pointing out that it is a very loaded question because, yes. because it implies, simply through asking that question, that you believe Lee did a poor job at the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah. Uh, and to be honest... I'm not sure I agree with the premise of the question. Um, I don't think Lee did that poor of a job at the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, not to say there aren't areas that I would criticize, but you know this is an area where you know Tony and I love to debate, and that's probably why you made the mistake of having both of us on this podcast. <laughs> yes. uh, because that the question of Lee's generalship. I mean, you can ask this question of all of the high, you know, core and uh, core and higher commanders who fought here, but Lee in particular, I think he gets the most attention. Uh, because we know how the battle ended. 
And that, I think, is the mistake that most people have. That's the baggage that people have when they ask that very loaded question. We know how this battle ended, and we know how the war ended. And it's very easy to look back and say, well, Gettysburg was clearly the turning point. You know, that was the high watermark of the Confederacy. That was not clear at the time. What was also not clear at the time, if we go to the battle itself, is that Lee was losing. Uh, And I'm sure we can get into this a little bit more as we go deeper into the discussion. But uh, for the majority of that battle, Lee had every reason to believe that he was winning and on the verge of completing a great masterstroke. Um, But it's hindsight, I think, that allows a lot of us as armchair generals to be as critical as we are uh, of his performance. So the short answer to your question is that, no, I, uh, I don't necessarily agree. It's you're right. I think as armchair historians, these these kind of questions are what generate the debate that history is all about, isn't it? And hindsight is a is a difficult one because um, it's difficult to detach yourself from the hindsight and to put yourself back into the boots of of these people who were lit. It was their lived experience, wasn't it? And um, to say that. Uh, Lee had every reason to think that he could win that battle, um, whether it was at the end of the first day, by the end of the second day, or indeed uh, at lunchtime on the third day. Um, it, it, it's a difficult one. But Tony, I wonder what your opinion is on, on that statement. I think that when we hear that statement, um, we lose sight of the bigger picture. And I think what Shelby Foote alludes to or hints at in that statement is that Lee was supremely convinced of his army's invincibility on the battlefield. And that the South, the loss of the war by the South was inevitable. There was There was no possible outcome other than the South losing that war. And I think that had it not been at Gettysburg, it would have been somewhere else. Lee would have fought that massive battle where he would have lost in some tragic opera style um, because Lee knew that at some point or another, he had to force that monumental battle on Union soil um, defeat the enemy on their own ground. And so he was looking, and I want to talk about that later. Why do we wind up fighting at Gettysburg? But Lee was looking for, and for a variety of reasons, looking for a fight on the Union soil and looking for a, a chance to make a decisive counterstroke. And if Gettysburg had turned into another draw like Antietam, would Lee have tried again if the opportunity presented itself? Yes, I absolutely believe he would have. And in that respect, I believe that Shelby Foote is correct. Lee was going to fight that God or damn wrong battle. If, if given the opportunity, he was going to fight that all or nothing battle. I think that was just bound to happen. Yeah, because Again, another line of thinking is that I, I've got slight issue with the fact that the South couldn't win that war, uh, particularly if, if you go down the line of thinking, 
the South just didn't have to lose the war. Um, they they could take a defensive posture, or had they taken a de- defensive posture, and force the Union to invade and uh, just defend their lines rather than going on the offensive twice as Lee, as Lee did into Northern Territory. That that that's a different question, I guess. But um, the amount of sorry, does somebody want to come in on that? I. I would argue that strategically, they fight the entire war on the defensive. And as Clausewitz teaches us, you cannot win on the strategic defensive. Tactically, they're quite often on the offensive. But strategically, most of the battles are fought in the South. Um, Most of their strategy is hanging on to what they have. And more so, I don't think the South has a clear strategy on how to win the war. I think for the North, not only is it pretty obvious what they need to do, but they recognize fairly early on that their objective is to bring the South back into the Union, and that means defeating the Confederate armies on the battlefield wherever they find them and occupying all of the territory. Whereas the South goes through a number of iterations, but oh, if only the French, the English the Canadians, the Lithuanians, whatever, whoever it is they fancy is going to rescue them, joins the war, things will be different. Um, And Lee goes into Pennsylvania both to take the war out of Virginia, because the war is fought almost exclusively in the East in Virginia, to take his army and thus the Union armies out of Virginia so that there's a possibility because these armies live off the land. There's a possibility that Virginia farmers might be able to harvest some food for someone other than the army. And because by taking the fight to the North, if he wins this brilliant battle, and this is my argument that he has to fight this battle. If he can bring the North to the fight and defeat them on Northern soil, that is their best hope to gain recognition from foreign powers and, and thus hope to sue for peace. If they continue to just repel the Union Army out of Virginia and try and stand them off at Vicksburg for three more years, they're not going to win. The Union is never going to let them win. Greg, is that something you agree with, that um, whether it was Gettysburg or elsewhere, that there had to be that climactic almost battle that sort of turning point battle that glee had to fight that had to find that battle well i'm going to agree with tony's interpretation of the shelby foot quote that you read i mean he and i i think took slightly different interpretations of that i was looking more specifically at the battle of gettysburg Mm. and tony's answer is zooming out a little bit and viewing that question in a wider context of well you know the price that the south paid was that Lee was going to be uber aggressive and he was going to push his luck. And as Tony pointed out, at some point, that was probably going to end badly because you can't win them all. (laughs) Uh, So in in that sense, I'll agree with Tony's wider interpretation of the question. The one quibble I will have with what he said is actually I'm agreeing with you, Sean. I don't think it was preordained that the South was going to lose that war. I mean, every every disadvantage was against them, of course. 
I mean, they <laughs> they were operating from a huge position of, of weakness in that war in more ways than one. But I do think that there was an opportunity for them to win, and that opportunity would have been a political victory um, if Abraham Lincoln had failed to win re-election in the fall of 1864. And he had a real challenger. McClellan put up a, a genuine challenge, but fortunately for Lincoln, there was some really good late news uh, in the end of 1864. It did not start off as a good year. If you go back and you look at newspaper accounts from early 64, Lincoln was getting skewered. Grant was getting skewered. Uh, newspaper columnists in the North were calling Grant a butcher. I mean, the Wilderness Campaign was a, a, a PR disaster for the Lincoln administration. And then they're bogged down in Petersburg in this bloody slugfest. I mean, po- politically, this was not a good look. Militarily, obviously, Grant was well on his way to winning the war. But you only win the war if Lincoln wins re-election. Uh, and I don't think it was preordained that was going to happen. But Atlanta falls right before the election. That was huge national news. Yes. Uh, and of course, now we're drifting a little bit farther away from the intended topic of your podcast, the Battle <laughs> yes. of Gettysburg. But uh, I, do, I do not agree with Tony that the outcome of any of this was preordained. Mm. Well, and I, I think there, you know, if Lincoln lost the election, could X, Y, and Z have happened? Yes. But I mathematically, the South lacks manpower, manufacturing, railways, um, the ability to feed their own people, the ability to import anything from overseas. They have they need basically for the North to screw up in order to win the war and for the North to screw up monumentally. And I don't know that even Lincoln losing the election of 64 and little Mac becoming president. I don't think that means that they're going to sue for peace and, and come to some conclusion that they can consider a win. Um, I would imagine that little Mac would, this would be the opportunity for McClellan to finally be the victor, to be, the great Napoleon of, of the situation. I can't imagine that he would let the South sue for peace. Yeah. It's, yes. And that's, a, that's an interesting um, counterfactual idea, isn't it? Of if McLennan had won that election, um, because there's plenty of people who think he was ready to sue for peace. Um, but whether or not that would have occurred, whether or not he would have sought that great battle, uh, particularly when he saw himself as a, a Napoleon type figure, um, whether he would have sought that uh, battle and uh, sought to destroy the South militarily. But j- just coming back then to Gettysburg itself, um, you you uh, referred to it earlier, Tony, and you're talking about why the battle was fought there at Gettysburg. Why, uh, why did Lee um, attack I know that he perhaps wasn't in control initially. He was some distance back, wasn't he, when the engagement first started and it, it escalated into something far bigger than was intended. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, I I believe that probably one of the better strategic decisions the South made in the war was to take the was to take the strategic offensive and take the war into the north 
Um, and I, I believe that Lee was correct in assuming that the best thing they could do, and, and I don't think Lee had any grand illusions about all we have to do is go north and defeat the Yankees in their own territory and, you know, everything will be sunshine and unicorn farts down in Dixie. I don't think he had any such illusions, but I believe that Lee believed that if he could achieve that, that was their best hope for getting recognition and from recognition, possibly getting involvement from European powers, even if that involvement was only to intervene to negotiate a peace. And there's some back and forth um, between Jefferson Davis and Lee about the goals of the campaign. And one of the goals, aside from getting the fighting out of Confederate territory, is that a demonstration and combine that with a, a, a successful victory, you know, another Chancellorsville, as it were, would be the catalyst that could gain them recognition with the with with European powers, and that would bring them a, a chance to get to the bargaining table with, you know, a, let's face it, if England had decided that they were to recognize the South and for protecting their cotton interests, which... Uh, we can go to Egypt and get cotton. The hell with that. Um, but had they decided to stick with the South for, you know, some of their textile needs, and had recognized the Confederacy as a nation after a victory at Gettysburg, that would have been enormous in terms of a negotiated peace. Um, and I think there Lee is correct in that this is this is something that needs to be done. It's a gamble. Lee knows it's a gamble, but it's something that needs to happen. It, I think my argument against that is the is is the pure scale of loss that both the Antietam, Antietam campaign and the Gettysburg campaign led to. Um, having already failed at Antietam, he then invades again, having had such a loss of life during the earlier campaign. He then risks everything again on another roll of the dice by invading the north, whereas if he'd perhaps had a more of a defensive posture and tried to bide his time, who, know, who knows what, what may have happened? Well, and they do. Between Antietam and Gettysburg, we have Chancellorsville, which is, is an enormous victory. Um, strategically, not so much, but tactically, it's a huge victory. And I think that buoys their hopes that, you know, that the tide has turned. Antietam happened, it didn't go our way, but now the great victory at Chancellorsville, and we're going to go forward with with a plan for, an in, for a new invasion of the North. Um, of course, at Chancellorsville, they lose Stonewall Jackson, and was Stonewall Jackson the be-all and end-all? That's a that's another opportunity for me to piss off your listeners. But <laughs> yes. I I think, and I think here Greg will agree with me. The Confederate Army at Gettysburg, the command of the federal of the Confederate Army at Gettysburg, is 
a giant, bloody, horrific example of the Peter Principle. Lee's army is bigger than it's ever been. He's commanding a force now larger than anything he's commanded up to date. Um, He has even less of an army command staff. He has less staff now than before. He divides the army into three corps to help deal with the loss of Jackson and the loss of generals in the Confederate army is horrific. They lose generals way faster than they can replace them. And they have no military college. They have no West Point to train officer candidates. They're just promoting people through the field. And they promote regimental commanders to brigadiers and brigade commanders to division commanders and division commanders to corps commanders. And I think quite a few of these people Lee included, are elevated to a point where they've surpassed their ability to command at Gettysburg. Yes. Yeah. I'd I'd agree with that. And maybe, Greg, um, can you come in on on this point? That um, once Lee knows that he's committed to battle and has pushed the Union back on the first day, uh, there's an instance on the evening of the first day where perhaps if Lee had been clearer with an order or had been bolder with an order, then things could have been different. I'm talking about um, the instinct with Ewell. It's um, uh, one of the most famous what ifs of the battle. Uh, yes. Yeah. This, this is, this is one actually, if, if I had to pick a counterfactual that visitors to the battlefield asked about most, this would be in the top top two. There, there were two that were frequently asked, and, and one of them was, well, what if Stonewall had been here? He would have taken Cemetery Hill, you know, at, at, yeah. the, at the end of July 1st. You know, he, he would have done it. And this gets back to Tony's point of, of the Peter principle of perhaps someone being promoted to Corps Command who, who wasn't ready for it. Rich, Richard Yule took over stonewall's position as as a corps commander and and yule was a very successful brigade commander also a very successful division commander so there was certainly every reason to think that he would be very capable at at corps command and honestly later in the war in 1864 i think he he is he does prove himself to be a pretty good corps commander the problem for yule and for lee is that this is his first battle as a corps commander He has never worked directly with Robert E. Lee in this capacity before, and he doesn't understand Lee's style of leadership, which is very different from, say, Jackson's style of leadership, which, you know, Ewell had had come up as a commander under Jackson, and Jackson was widely known as as a bit of a micromanager. Uh, He was extremely active in the field. He was constantly riding around, I mean, directly in the fight. This is how he is killed at Chancellorsville. He's a very frontline style of commander. He, he gives verbal orders and written orders very directly, and he demands that his subordinates do X. That is not Lee's command style at all. Lee is of the command style where he gives you a broad outline of what to do, and then he just trusts that you're going to do it. And that worked when he had Jackson, and it worked when he had Longstreet, but... Hill and Yule are thrown into the fire at this huge battle 
never having experienced this style of leadership before. And they both, you know, they both come up short big time. I mean, Hill and Yule come up short at Gettysburg. There's no question about it. And I think it's fair not just to blame them, but to blame Lee. Because Lee had done nothing to prepare those two men for what his style of leadership was. And that that order that you're talking about, Sean, you know, the famous order, you know, you are to take that hill if practicable. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, what does if practicable mean? How are you going to interpret that (laughs) exactly? Uh, And that's the point, I think, isn't it, that uh, around that that quote, um, that... For me, that shows uh, failure in Lee. Um, I know that you're, you're explaining there that that was Lee's style, and that if that had been Jackson who'd been given the order, then uh, we may have had a different outcome. Well, I'll, but, let me let me push back on you just for a second on that, yeah, Sean, because because yeah. I, I I don't want to say I'm a Richard Yule apologist, but I <laughs> on this particular question. That's I, not the hill you want to die on. I'm no, I'm not. I'm not dying. I'm not dying on that one-legged hill. But I, I, I will say that on the evening of July first, there there is a presumption that if only Stonewall had been there, the Confederates they definitely would have pushed and they they would have taken that hill. They just needed to push a little bit harder. To be fair, Yule does push pretty hard. The the fighting that is occurring in and around Cemetery Hill goes until dusk. I mean, it is dark out yes. when the, the battle is called off. And, and Yule feeds in every available brigade into that action. Uh, you know, could have he pushed a little harder somehow? Well, maybe. But if you look at the timeline of what occurs there, he, he commits all of his forces and he fights until darkness. <laughs> and he comes damn close. I mean, they almost did take the hill. Yes. So I, I don't think that we should pretend that he just sort of sat back and let events transpire. I mean, he did interpret Lee's order as, okay, uh, Lee Lee says I should take the hill if practicable. Well, I'm going to give it a go. I mean, he did give it a go. And yes. I, would, I, I the Stonewall Jackson thing at Culp's Hill, people say, oh, if Stonewall had been there. Well, which Stonewall are we talking about? Uh, are we talking about Stonewall in the Valley or Stonewall in the Peninsula? Because great point. He doesn't have a great track record outside of the Shenandoah Valley, so there's no evidence that makes me think that Gettysburg, which last I looked was also outside the Shenandoah Valley, would lead him to be at his best. Um, I think you're right. That's a that's just a a, a waste of of discussion to say, well, what if Stonewall? He wasn't. We have to look at who was there. And I would think that, Sean, you're right in that Lee has, this is where Lee fails to some extent at Gettysburg because he doesn't prep his new corps commanders or his his new corps command structure. He doesn't prep the commanders and the rest of the staff for how he does things. These are people who haven't worked with him or not worked with him in this capacity. And as a leader, there's pro- there's some expectation that he should have explained to them, this is how we do stuff here. Um, and he should have recognized at some point in the battle, because Lee continues to make those sort of what if vague kind of, if you feel like it sort of orders to his commanders. And he should recognize that in this situation, even Longstreet 
the old war horse doesn't respond in the way he used to respond to Lee's typical style of orders at Gettysburg. And Lee doesn't recognize that for whatever reason and doesn't change his style to to work with the fact that his normal style isn't getting it done with his his subordinates. I think that's a shortcoming of his that he doesn't recognize that his usual style isn't working today. Yeah, I'm I'm with Tony on that criticism of Lee for sure. And I since we're on this particular topic, I have two quotes that I want to read that I I pulled up uh, before our we started recording here. These are these are fantastic quotations, um, and they are both made by European observers who were present with Lee. The first one is actually shows up in the movie Gettysburg. It's uh, Colonel Fremantle, a British observer. He is with Lee the entire time at Gettysburg. And I'm going to read you, this is, this is Fremantle writing about Robert E. Lee. As soon as the firing began, General Lee joined Hill just below our tree, and he remained there nearly all the time looking through his field glasses, sometimes talking to Hill and sometimes Colonel Long of his staff. But generally, he sat quite alone on the stump of a tree. What I remarked especially was that during the whole time the firing continued, he only sent one message, and he only received one report. It is evidently his system to arrange the plan thoroughly with the three corps commanders, and then to leave them the duty of modifying and carrying it out to the best of their abilities. End quote. A very interesting observation, and Colonel Fremantle is right in everything that he said except for one really important point. It is evidently Lee's system to arrange the plan thoroughly with the three corps commanders. Well, that's a very um, convenient assumption on Colonel Fremantle's part because Lee did not arrange the plan thoroughly with his three corps commanders at Gettysburg. Yeah. And uh, you've meant you've touched on uh, Longstreet there because uh, moving on to the second day, there's a huge controversy, isn't there, around. At what time was that order given from Lee to Longstreet to attack on the south? The, the, the attack on the north has fizzled out at the end of day one, and Lee then looks to the south and looks to his old war horse, as, as you've said, Tony, uh, in, in Longstreet. But um, Longstreet seems to have been the scapegoat, certainly post-war. Um, I'm not so much sure during the war, but post-war, he received a heck of a lot of criticism, didn't he, for uh, allegedly delaying his attack? Well, fortunately for Longstreet, he outlives Lee and therefore can write (laughs) that he was scapegoated um, and that he knew all along none of this was going to work out. Um, And I don't know... And off the top of my head, I don't recall the exact timeline, and it's disputed depending on whose history you're reading. Yes, but the the order on the second day wasn't the only friction between Lee and Longstreet. Longstreet was. Um, I don't know if it's the right word. Longstreet was kind of resistant to getting engaged 
to getting his troops into the battle as Lee wanted. I, the more I read about it, I think, and I haven't read any of Longstreet's personal writings on the subject, um, that sort of blame it on others um, after the war stuff. I, I read Manstein. I've had enough of that. Um, that notion that Longstreet bears some of the responsibility for Longstreet's failures. I know after the war, when Lee passed, Longstreet argued his case, and he was the only person to, there was no one to counter it. So, you know, we now have this view of Longstreet as having been maligned, but Longstreet bears some of the responsibility for his poor performance. Lee goes to Longstreet. It's not like they were just sending messages. You know, they meet in person, and Longstreet is kind of noncommittal in this battle. It's a failure of his, too. Greg, any, any view on that? Um, well, I think a lot of the criticism Longstreet gets after the war is because Longstreet dares to whisper a word of criticism of Lee. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, he, and he does it after Lee is dead, which is, you know, generally considered uncool in the South. Yes. Uh, yeah, poor poor form. And and to be fair, I have read Longstreet's memoir, and it is one of the worst Civil War memoirs I've read. I've read quite a few of them. I mean, it is so deeply self-serving and revisionist that it's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. Um, so I, I, <laughs> I'd be lying if I said that didn't color my view of Longstreet a little bit. It was not not a, a good look for him uh, when he was writing about it. But at, at the time of the battle, I, I'll agree with Tony that, you know, the battle's not a great look for him either. Um, he does not show really any flexibility or imagination on his day two attack. Uh, the, the, the timeline is definitely, you know, debatable, but it, it looks as if it's not until between three and four o'clock in the afternoon that Longstreet has forces in position to make this attack. And his most aggressive division commander, uh, General Hood, is arguing that, look, look, we, we got to kick this thing off as soon as possible. You know, every minute here that we're wasting is, is a critical minute. And Longstreet makes the poor decision in hindsight to say, no, 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 I'm going to wait until every brigade we have is in position. And the very last brigade, of course, is the one that had to go the farthest. It's Evander Law's brigade. And they've been marching all day. And they're the ones who have to go way out on the end of the line, the very far southern flank across from Little Round Top. So the rest of Longstreet's corps is just sitting there waiting for Law's guys who have had even nothing to drink. I mean, there's guys who are dropping out of heat exhaustion. And in hindsight, Longstreet should have shown the flexibility, and he had the experience to know better, frankly. He should have listened to Hood. He shouldn't have waited for Law's guys to get into position. He should have kicked that attack off an hour before he did, at least an hour. Uh, but he decides to wait. Um, and even when he does kick off the attack, Hood actually asks for permission to change the axis of advance a little bit based on the terrain that's in front of him. And Longstreet says, no. No, we're, we're just going to, you know, we're going to go by the book on this one. Again, a bit of a odd decision. And historians have been trying to interpret that ever since. You know, is, is that a sign that Longstreet didn't want to do this attack at all? Was Longstreet having a bad day? Was he a little pissed off at Lee at the time? We can't trust his memoirs, frankly. So there's really yeah. not going to be any way to, to know. But 
it's a spectacular attack that, I mean, almost unhinges the Union Army because of what Sickles did going out into the peach orchard. But it is not Longstreet's finest hour. That is for sure. I mean, it's not the finest hour of any of the corps commanders here for the Confederacy. And, and I think, you know, there again, there's that. Have they been promoted beyond their ability? And, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't have been promoted because the Confederate Army, the Army of Northern Virginia, had suffered horrific losses at Chancellorsville for all the all the Grant is a butcher talk. Lee, even in his victories, his armies are bludgeoned. The losses in even the battles he wins are unsustainable and they exceed what Lee or what Grant or for that matter, most of the other other Southern commanders sustain in any of their battles. Lee bleeds troops like there's no tomorrow in all of his battles. And, you know, it's he winds up promoting people to positions that they're just not maybe not qualified for, maybe they're not, maybe they're not going to be failures as corps commanders, but they fail as corps commanders. They fail as division commanders because they're promoted to that position and then immediately thrown into the greatest endeavor of the war. You know, maybe had there been some lead up time, um, some battle between Chancellorsville and Gettysburg for Lee to get, his army tuned up, things would have been different. But as it was, they pack up and they march on Gettysburg, or they march into Pennsylvania, rather, um, with corps commanders who haven't commanded a corps and division commanders who haven't commanded a division and no direction from Lee. And I, is it Lee's failure alone? No, but Lee bears the responsibility because Lee didn't make the necessary preparations for his new commanders to follow his orders. So two two things I want to follow up on there, Tony. One is just that this questioning of, like, the is this the Peter principle at play? That makes sense for so many characters here at Gettysburg, but not for Longstreet. And that is why Longstreet's performance at Gettysburg has always puzzled me, because he is a proven Corps commander, has an excellent track record of performance leading up to this battle, and frankly, an excellent track record after the battle. He has off days, of course, but is is he just having an off day here at Gettysburg? That, to me, is a huge mystery. And one other point that I want to make is we've, we've only been talking about the Confederate side here. And I'll admit, you know, for Tony and I, that has always been sort of the half of this equation, I think, that has fascinated us the most because they lose the battle. So, of course, you're going to focus on them. But let's remember that the Peter principle is very much in play in the other army as well. I don't want to to pretend as if it's only the Confederates who are showing up here hamstrung and bloodied. The Union army leading up to the Battle of Gettysburg is a complete freaking mess. In the wake of Chancellorsville, it is a complete free-for-all. I mean, Meade is only promoted to command of this army like a week before the battle. Yes. Uh, so it is, uh, there is a lot of command confusion happening on both sides. And, you know, the results are, uh, I think, predictably disastrous at times uh, in both armies. Yeah. And um, yeah, 
I, I can't argue with that. I think the interesting thing for me um, that I can just never square away is uh, what what time was that order sent? And I, there's various theories on it, and I, I don't think we will ever get to the bottom of that. But and I agree that Longstreet has to shoulder some of the blame. But for me, um, from my readings. I, I feel as though uh, the Lee, the those that deify General Lee, uh, seek to push too much of the blame towards Longstreet um, for the delay, as opposed to accepting that Lee could have had some hand in the fact that 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 order wasn't sent quite as soon. As Let me ask you this, Sean. Maybe. I mean, I let's let's say that. Longstreet had received that order faster and maybe he didn't have to do his circuitous, you know, counter march because he was worried about being observed from little rounds out. Let's just pretend that doesn't happen. He he kicks the attack off hours beforehand. Do you are, do you suppose that uh, that would have been a, a battle winning maneuver that it would have ended the battle? I, I, again, it's an impossible one to answer. I suspect not. I, I do suspect not. Um, but then, and you've just brought up the, the subject of the Union, what position were the Union in to defend earlier? Were they, were they in, a, in a suitable position to be able to hold that line, uh, hold that end of the line? Would we have had the twentieth, the story of the 20th Maine? No, uh, we, we would not have. The, the timeline no. on that is clear. If Longstreet's oh my attack... God, would be crushed. Oh, I know. <laughs> uh, if Longstreet's attack had kicked off even one or two hours before it did... There yes. were no Union troops on the round tops, round tops none, yes. none at all. And the yeah, Confederates exactly. could have upended that flank. But there again, you know, that's another one of the questions people ask when they visit the battlefield. Like, oh, well, you know, if the Confederates had only taken Little Round Top, honestly, if you've been to Little Round Top and you've taken a look at how rugged and nasty that hill is, you couldn't even get a gun onto there. There was no yeah. way the Confederates were going to wheel batteries up that afternoon onto Little Round Top. I'm not entirely convinced if they had even taken Little Round Top that it would have been a battle-winning maneuver. It may have forced the Union Army into a redeployment, no question, but yeah. there, there's other high ground that, that the Union could have very easily adopted, and it would have set up a completely different scenario for Day 3. And maybe you could argue at that point Meade would have chosen to withdraw, but yeah. um, I, I'm, I'm not, not really convinced that taking little round top on day two changes this battle in a material way. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the Union got the interior lines, hadn't they? For God's sake. You know, the the uh, Confederate army was just stretching itself on such a long line to try and get to that position. But the, the Union were at Meade had got the comfort of interior lines to send reinforcements to whichever point of the line was going to be the focus. And this leads into day three now um uh, lee has has failed or ostensibly he's failed uh the push in the north on day one he's uh, the south attack has failed on day two and now he decides to go up the middle um and greg uh, you've mentioned that as as a part of the battlefield uh, park service you were the expert on pickett's charge um, what blame can we lay at 
Lee's feet for that debacle? Well, um, <laughs> if you're going to pick any day of the battle to criticize Lee, certainly day three is the day where you would offer the most criticism. I mean, he he arguably won the first day of the battle. Um, and if a, if a guy like Joe Hooker had been in command of the Union Army, I think the Union Army probably would have withdrawn from Gettysburg after day one. Right. Meade has a command conference at the end of the first day, and he he polls his corps commanders and says, hey, do you, do you guys think that we should stay here? There was a very good chance the Union Army was simply going to fall back on a, a, a defensive position that Meade had already scouted out uh, just south of this in Maryland along Pipe Creek. And he thought very seriously about doing that. So Lee, I think Lee wins day one. Day two is a stalemate, although Lee comes very, very close to upending the Union line. And there's a, a there's a very hotly debated question as to what Lee's plan actually was for day three. We do not have anything definitive in writing. We have uh, memoirs from various officers who were present. Uh, we have letters that we've tried to decipher. But Lee doesn't actually leave us anything in writing that states his plan. And... Everything that I have read and studied on this leads me to believe that it was not Lee's original plan to charge up the middle um, with Pickett's division. My feeling on this, and I'm going to admit that this, this is debated, and there are historians who are debating this still today, so I'm, I'm only giving you sort of my take on this. My take is that Lee actually was trying to go for a repeat of day two. Uh, he was hoping to revive the offensive uh, up at the northern end of the battlefield, hoping to unhinge Cemetery Hill uh, with some action, uh, distracting action down at the southern end of the battlefield, just to kind of buy Union attention down there. I think he was going for Cemetery Hill much more than he was trying to punch across the ridge in the center of the battlefield. The, the problem that Lee has on that morning is that the Union on the northern end of the battlefield at Culp's Hill, they actually seize the initiative. They, they preempt Lee's plans that morning. And the very first shots that are fired that morning are not by the Confederates. It's by Union troops who are attacking at the extreme northern end of the field. And that draws Ewell's corps into an engagement that he wasn't really planning on. He was supposed to be supporting an attack on Cemetery Hill. But Lee's plan gets derailed. Um, and for war gamers, I think that this, this just opens up all kinds of in interesting questions about the value of sort of seizing the initiative. This is a big part of the reason for the command and control system in my game, uh, in Altar of Freedom, is, is for moments like this. Because that loss of the initiative on the morning of, um, of the 3rd is kind of what forces Lee to go back to the drawing board. You know, the plan that he had intended, I, that I believe he had intended to go for, is no longer possible. That's been derailed. And then the question is, well, you know, we didn't get all dressed up for nothing, right? <laughs> what are what are we gonna do now? Yeah. I've I've got fifteen thousand guys who are sitting here ready to break the deadlock, and he ends up directing them a little bit farther south than I think was was intended. So that's another great what if of the battle. You know, what if Lee had actually been able to kind of pull off what I I think evidence suggests was the intended plan? I I think you're analysis of what Lee wanted to do versus what happened is, is correct. And I think, um, 
Scotty Bowden's last chance for victory, I think, goes into a, a good bit of detail about. Now, it is a Lee apologist book, but they go into a good bit of detail about what was Lee trying to do on the third day and that he wanted to demonstrate on the northern end of the line um, while he attacked Cemetery Hill and Longstreet's troops were going to advance either to support that were it successful or to draw troops away from that. Um, it was, I gather it was supposed to be a more coordinated effort than it was. And you touched on something, Greg, when you talked about the union and the union core structure is much different than the Confederate core structure. And while there are a lot of people you know, there's some shifting of who does what because Meade is promoted to army commander and Hooker is demoted while they're marching to the battle for all intents and purposes. But because they have smaller cores, they have more cores but smaller, and because they have vastly more staff than Lee does, I think the transition for them is easier. They have a much more they have a much more spelled out command structure. Um, and, and as a result, they have a much more formulaic approach to dispensing orders to the cores and formulating orders so that they're understood. Whereas the Confederate Army, the Army of Northern Virginia, is <laughs> It's based around the cult of Lee, for a better lack of a better term, and so there's no real formal structure. They don't have enough people to have a formal staff. Um, you know, staff officers have been put into divisional command positions because there aren't any generals. And I think that the Union Army, because from the start it was better organized and a more granular structure is capable of surviving bad commanders or bad command decisions on the battlefield much better than the Army of Northern Virginia, where the three corps are enormous entities and everything revolves around being in tune with General Lee. I, I think that at some point it was inevitable that that would be a recipe for disaster on the battlefield. And Gettysburg is just where all that happens. So was it almost like a perfect storm, do you think, coming together? Um, I, I do. In a, in, in a way, I believe that's the case because we have this, we have this unwieldy structure that revolves around the personality of general Lee and up until that point, the personalities of Stonewall Jackson and General Longstreet. And now suddenly it's thrust into this new situation without Stonewall Jackson, and it's been subdivided in a different way, and it's dependent on Lee. And while I've seen a dozen different explanations for what ails Lee at Gettysburg, regardless of what it was, 
Lee has a bad three days. And as a result, the Army of Northern Virginia has a bad three days. And I, I would agree with Greg. They win the first day. And Lee does have some staff meetings and outlines his plans. But Lee fails to see that his officers aren't responding in the ways they used to. And while we can debate, you know, why did Longstreet perform poorly? Um, was Yule not up to the task of the Corps commander? What would have happened if Jackson had been there? All of those what-ifs are subordinate to the fact that the overall Army commander failed to see that he wasn't providing, whether he wasn't providing the right orders or he wasn't holding his commanders accountable, he wasn't doing what he needed to do as an Army commander to ensure victory. Lee fails to see that he's failing, and as a result, the whole thing falls apart. I think that's Gettysburg in a nutshell. Yes, and uh, yeah, I think I think that sort of mirrors onto my my feelings really. Um, so we know Pickett's charge fails. I think the Reb, the Confederate Army, lose something like thirty seven percent casualties, which clearly it couldn't afford um, at any point in the war, but certainly at that point, and. It, Probably rightly is called the high tide of the Confederacy, isn't it? But um, just to end this this little portion of the chat, then we'll we'll come back to that first question, Greg. I'll come to you first. Was Gettysburg the price that the South had to pay for having Robert E. Lee? I still don't think so. Um, I, I, in the wider sense that Tony mentioned, perhaps, I mean, was it, instead of, instead of Gettysburg, if you just put a blank there <laughs> and you said was, was blank climactic and disastrous battle the price, uh, then, then maybe yes, because Lee is inherently always seeking the offensive. And I know earlier in this discussion, Sean, you said, well, you know, I don't understand why Lee just didn't, he should have played it on the defensive. Those were his strengths. You know, he, he's, mm. he's excellent on the defensive and he is Lee's record as a defensive commander is, is extremely good. He wins some of his greatest victories on the defensive, uh, Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania court. I mean, there's just a, a long list of great defensive actions, but that's not who he is. <laughs> Lee is always seeking for opportunities to attack his, his, his letters are just filled with him lamenting lost opportunities that he wished that he could have grasped. So in the sense that was the price the South had to pay that he was going to engage them in costly and bloody battles? Yes, absolutely. Um, but I think he could have won this battle. I, I truly do. I, he could have won the Battle of Gettysburg. It was always going to be a tough task. But even with all the handicaps we discussed, there were plenty of handicaps on the other side. But there are... There are key moments and key decisions that go in the Union's favor. And I know we haven't mentioned him much in this discussion, but George Meade deserves way more credit than he has ever received for his... He's the, the forgotten man at Gettysburg. No one ever talks yes. about Meade. But uh, for a guy who got this job literally a week before the battle with the weight of the country on his shoulders, 
he fights an excellent defensive battle. And he's given multiple opportunities to withdraw and to quit the field, and he doesn't. He decides to stick it out. And he couldn't have known it at the time, but it was the right decision. That's how he won the battle. He won this battle because he refused to retreat. So credit to Meade, even though I, I know we're trying to talk about Lee in this conversation, but uh, I don't think enough people give credit to the, the guy who was fighting Lee in this battle. Did a pretty damn yes, job. I, I, do th- I do think that um, people overlook uh, Meade's achievements. Um, I, I, he's just not that much of a personality, is he? I don't, he's not. No. Uh, he, he, no. He's, very he's mild a, mannered guy publicly. Privately, yeah. he's actually very fiery. <laughs> right. He's, okay. he's, he's coarse. Uh, he, he curses a lot. I mean, the people who knew him and worked with him knew him as a very fiery personality. But publicly, he is extremely humble and and uh, just goes about his business. I think the phrase uh, "goggle-eyed snapping turtle" was uh, one that was attributed to uh, uh, to Mead. But, the old uh, snapper, yeah. The old snapper, yeah. Uh, Tony, then uh, the same question to you: Are you are you uh, changing your mind or sticking with your original assumption? No, I'm going to stick with my original assumption, and I think Greg uh, makes a strong case for me when he said, had you left it <laughs> taken out Gettysburg and just left a blank there. I think that if the war had turned out differently, I, I, I don't think the South would have won. I don't see a path to victory for them. But had the war gone some other course, lasted three more years, blah, 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 whatever, I think Shelby Foote would have written that Emmitsburg or Spotsylvania or Butthole, West Virginia was the price the South paid for having Lee in command. I Lee wins his greatest victories when his army is on the defensive, but when he takes the fight to the enemy when they're fighting strategically in a defensive posture, when they're fighting in Virginia is when Lee is that aggressive general that we all think of when we think of Lee um, at Chancellorsville where, you know, a a master stroke and it's, that is mostly Lee's doing. I mean, his subordinates execute a brilliant, brilliant battle, but Lee sees an opportunity. He does it at Fredericksburg. He's willing to split his smaller army in the face of a much larger enemy, which is an enormous risk, and achieve victory. And he demonstrates that aggressive fighting spirit everywhere. So I think that it's inevitable, because I believe it's inevitable that the South would lose. I believe it's inevitable that at some point Lee would have put himself in a position to fight that titanic battle um, where he eventually fail. I mean, he was bound to fail at some point. I also agree with Greg that we tend to look at Gettysburg as Lee's Lee's battle to lose as if he controlled all the cards and could somehow, you know, if, if the Confederates lost at Gettysburg, surely it was because somebody in the army of Northern Virginia failed. 
and Lee's the commander, so ultimately we place the blame at Lee's feet. But the fact of the matter is that at the end of the day, when you look at it, Lee is outmaneuvered, outgunned, and outfought by the Army of the Potomac. They they get the job done, and it's the first time that they get the job done. Prior to that, they had gone home with their tails between their legs. And now here today in July in Gettysburg in the heat, summertime in Pennsylvania, not only do they stand their ground, but they beat back the vaunted army of Northern Virginia three days. And sadly, Meade commands the Army of the Potomac till the end of the war. He doesn't even get invited to the surrender at Appomattox. He's absent from that. They don't invite him. He is in command for what is probably the greatest Union victory of the war and one of the great battles of, of history. And when the enemy surrenders, when the guy he defeated on the battlefield the first Union commander to defeat Lee on the battlefield. When Lee finally surrenders, Meade isn't even invited. It's it's a, it's incomprehensible that, that he's given so little correct so little credit by his his contemporaries. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And if I'm absolutely truthful it's not uh, an angle I've thought of before. So uh, thank you, gentlemen, for for. Uh, raising that with me that um it's certainly a blind spot uh to think uh that Meade didn't receive that credit and uh was was the ignored and forgotten man of Gettysburg thanks very much for that uh, discussion gentlemen I'm not sure my mind has been changed <laughs> uh-huh. uh, <laughs> uh but it's this is this is the the wonderful nature of history isn't it that you can have uh, these discussions on uh, these battles and have opinions and uh, and fight it out as as to putting across your own point of view. But we'll co- we'll come to just for the last part of the um, the chat then, gents. If we can just come back to the actual gaming of the battle, um, for we, we've discussed that, that there are various ways of gaming. You can fight the peach orchard, the round tops, or the whole three days. Um, and this is a loaded question, Greg, because you are the author of what I consider the best American, sets, American Civil War set of rules. Um, but what, what do you think is the best way of capturing the essence of Gettysburg on the tabletop? You're allowed to say using ultra freedom and fighting all three days. Well... I- if, if you were going to fight all three days, then yes, of course, that, that is actually the rule set that I would use. But yes. your question was, what's the best way to game this battle? And I'm not sure, actually, off the top of my head, how I would answer that. I think the, the holy grail for most war gamers would be to do all three days. And mm. having done that a couple of times, I can say that that was incredibly fun and also interesting from a historical perspective you 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 pick up on a couple of things when you game the entire battle that you're just not going to get when you zoom in but the reason i'm hesitating is because we've we have zoomed in to a couple of the actions and when you do that 
you tend to be able to appreciate some of the really interesting, I'll call them like human interest stories, right? At all yeah. levels of this battle, there are amazing and fascinating characters. And in the last 90 minutes here, we've been talking about Lee and Meade and high-level core commanders, but you you can drop that down into the regimental and brigade level and get amazing stories that are really fun to kind of like live out on the tabletop. Um, so, yes, for me personally, I am a big battle guy. You know that about me. Tony and I are both like big battle guys. So if you if I could only play one Gettysburg War game, I would zoom out and I would do all three days at the army level. Absolutely. Yeah. But having also been able to zoom in, I can say that that is actually pretty pretty cool as well. <laughs> yes, yeah, and I, um, I can't remember who threw the name in, but this Scott Mingus approach uh, using the Johnny Reb rules and some of the fantastic tables that he has built uh, based around Gettysburg—they are that zoomed-in approach, aren't they? Where they're, they're looking at that 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 tighter knit. Uh, aspect of the battle and and they are look equally as good on the tabletop and ask as interesting a question as it does uh, if you're commanding the the whole shebang um tony for you um again i i appreciate it's a loaded question i think greg has already answered for you there but uh uh what would your thinking be around uh, the best way to capture the the unique nature of what the Gettysburg battle was. Well, I, I, there is something to be said for gaming the entire battle. Um, the first time we did it as Lee, I ordered Longstreet to attack Cemetery Hill. Okay. You're going to, you're going to go left and you're going to attack Cemetery Hill and wound up fighting. Longstreet wound up fighting at the round tops and, Greg commented to me afterwards that he could just see, he could see it happening. He could see the frustration in my face and we had a, a sort of order system. And I just, you, you see bits and pieces of, of the battle take place. It, the thing gets a life of its own. When you do the whole battle and you have multiple people commanding formations, the thing takes a life of its own yes. and you, get just the most basic sense because there's nothing at stake but you get that sense of how the thing grows and gains momentum and becomes difficult to direct in any meaningful way it, it takes on its own persona and the battle goes forward inevitably in spite of of your wishes but there's also something very, very satisfying about playing at the lower levels and seeing that. Um, and by lower levels, if I were to do, if I were picking rule sets to use for Gettysburg at the highest levels doing the entire battle, I would look at Altar of Freedom, Volley and Bayonet. Then dropping down from there would be the original brigade level fire and fury rules, which I've yes. always loved. And down from there, a step um, would be the regimental fire and fury rules. Nothing against Johnny Reb. I've owned several versions of it. It just wasn't my cup of tea. But 
to go down to like the regimental rules and fight some of those smaller actions that wound up having a, a larger impact on the battle. Um, there's it's just something very fascinating and satisfying about when you're moving around a, a regiment and trying to shake them out into line in in response to a charge. I the whole battlefield from regimental action up to commanding the whole thing. I, I think if you are truly a Civil War enthusiast, truly a Gettysburg enthusiast, you'll want to explore the the battle in all its iterations. Yeah, so Sean, maybe that's a bit of a wishy-washy answer from Tony and myself. Like, oh, well, they're all they're all great to do. So let me give you one definitive piece of advice that I do feel comfortable offer, offering, which is that if you want to get into the period and you are fascinated with Gettysburg, I absolutely would suggest that you focus on collecting and painting small-scale figures. Um, six millimeter or, or 10 millimeter and at the absolute maximum 15 millimeter. And the reason I say that is because if you do want to be able to use your figures to explore all of the different facets of the battle, then it is really helpful to have smaller figures, ideally even on smaller bases so that you can sabo those bases together. If you want to play something like altar of freedom but yes. you've got the little individual bases where you could also do something like Fire and Fury, where you need to be able to represent formation changes. So doing that smaller scale, I think, is is a really useful way to save yourself some time and money, <laughs> because I have Civil War figures in several scales. <laughs> um, but if you're just starting out, it, it helps to go in the smaller scale, because there's no reason that you can't use 6 or 10 millimeter figures to, to drill down and drop down and play a regimental level game. I think sometimes people look at six mil and it's like, oh, well, that's for big army level games. No, you you can use those six mil figures for a lot more than that. Tom uses his six mil figures to do uh, Pickett's Charge, where, you know, as players, we reach just like commanding a single brigade, essentially. I'm going to do individually based six millimeter figures. Madness. <laughs> Madness. <laughs> just saying. Don't do well, it. Well, it is God's own scale, Tony. Maybe Leipzig. <laughs> Leipzig at the individual scale. Okay. <laughs> well, I was going to say it's getting late, uh, but uh, it isn't for you guys, is it? But uh, It's getting late uh, for you, yeah. It certainly <laughs> is, yeah. Um, it was like 2 a.m. over there now? Uh, yeah, getting on, nearly knocking on 2 a.m., yeah. Uh, but don't you worry about me. I'm, I'm resilient. I'm, I'm 51, but uh, there's plenty of life in the old dog yet. <laughs> but uh, just, uh, just going back to that point you were making there, Tony, I, I, that is, for me, as a Civil War nut who has played Gettysburg, but bits of it or, you know, one day of it at a time or uh, one particular aspect, having somebody in that role as the CNC who will then dish out the orders and hopefully those orders get interpreted correctly and hopefully they get implemented correctly. But then the horror that you might see as, as something collapses uh, where you weren't expecting it, then that, that has got, to, for me, that's got to be the ultimate wargaming experience where uh, you, you as close as you can when you're playing with toy soldiers on a tabletop, you're replicating that that feeling of, of being in charge of a, a monster that uh, is really out of your control once once those initial orders go out. 
So, gentlemen, um, thanks very much for sharing your time with me for this fascinating chat. It's been absolutely wonderful. The Battle of Gettysburg is my, well, visiting the, the battlefield, first of all, is on my bucket list, and it will happen hopefully in the next couple of years. I'll be able to uh, cross the pond and uh, stride those fields and uh, may, maybe uh, recreate Pickett's Charge on my own uh, going across that field. But um, just before we leave, as is tradition, um, there's there's two things I ask of any guests, and you know what's coming, gentlemen, uh, that you uh, both agree to uh, return to the podcast at some point in the future. I'm looking to set the record, as you know, Sean. So You are. Uh, and Tony is not far behind you. Um, and I the, love uh, to get on here again. Just so much. <laughs> it, I, Sean, I have enjoyed chatting with you. This is the second time now. This has been, this will be the highlight of August for me. Oh, that's, that's very kind. It must have been a very quiet August. <laughs> no, actually, I caught... I caught my first 20-inch brown trout out in Oregon uh, the other week. In fact, I wow. caught, I was out on a fishing trip with a friend of mine and caught several. I caught my first, second, and third 20-inch trout in the same day. Um, if I'm topping a big brown trout, then I'll consider that a job well done <laughs> from my side of the Atlantic. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the second request I put into any guest, and again, you know, what's coming and I'm going to come to you. First of all, Greg is, uh, to deposit a book onto the virtual shelves of the God's own scale virtual library. Uh, yes, very good. The book I will deposit today is the one I am rereading right now. Uh, this is my third or fourth read through of Stephen Sears to the gates of Richmond. Uh, it's about the Peninsula Campaign. And on a previous appearance, because I am a regular here on God's Own Scale, um, I did recommend Stephen Sears' Gettysburg. Uh, so probably no surprise that I'm recommending another one of his books. But um, mild spoiler alert for you Little Wars TV fans, I am uh, I am reading this book for a reason. Uh, we are uh, refreshing our history here for an uh, upcoming Little Wars TV project. I am salivating at, at the very prospect of that. The Gettysburg book and, in fact, his book on Antietam, uh, Landscape Turned Red, are just absolutely wonderful single-volume histories of those those two battles. So I haven't read To the Gates of Richmond, though, so I shall look that one up. So ah, add that. it to your list. He's just uh, he's a great writer. He says a, yes. a real talent for, uh, for storytelling and in a way that a lot of other Civil War historians can get a little bit dry. You, you never get bored when you're reading Stephen Sears. Have, have you read the, um, the Fants books on the first and second day? I don't know. I, I, don't I yes, day. yes, I have. Yes, they're somewhat, <laughs> somewhat drier than Mister Sears. Very good, very good. But a very technical of retelling of the battle. Yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, to Tony, over to yourself. Well, now I feel a bit embarrassed. It's fans, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> what, are you reading a comic book over there? No. Um, yeah, Fences, Gettysburg, uh, Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill. Oh which, boy. Uh, oh boy. Okay. His writing is not in the style of a Stephen Ambrose or a Shelby foot, but I, I believe it's a good detailed, um, 
chronology of, of what happened those two days at that end of the battlefield. Um, it's one of those things like um, we interviewed uh, Colonel Glantz mm-hmm. and he writes of the Russian front and I find his work very dry and I struggle through it, but it is very informative. There's a lot of good stuff in there. You just have to wait a little bit. This is not quite that level, but um, it's not it's not fascinatingly it's it's not written in a way that raises your heartbeat, but I there's a good there's a good solid base of information there. Well, I have all three of the the fans books, the first, second, and uh, the the Corpse Hill book, and I've read them. Um, I'm going to say multiple times. I'm thinking if I've read all three of them multiple times, but I've certainly read them all and I've enjoyed them, but uh, do find them a bit drier. As you say, the pulse doesn't get going on it, but uh, the amount of detail in there is invaluable, I think, for anybody who is a serious student of uh, of the battle. So um, thank you very much, Tony. That will sit very proudly on the shelves. Uh, sure, Greg hates me now. Oh, no, no. If you are if you want to really take a deep dive, Fance, Fance is certainly a, a place to go. Hey, before we wrap up here, Sean, I did. I had one question for you. Yes. Um, you. You had mentioned that you and your club had never played the entire Battle of Gettysburg before, but that you had done pieces. Um, yes. What, what rule set over there in your club and, and, and maybe in the surrounding clubs, what seems to be the, the go-to rules for gaming pieces of Gettysburg like that because over here as Tony mentioned it's it's definitely fire and fury you know, our club has yeah. always been a big big fan of fire and fury uh, what what are you guys gaming yeah the just original... tell him order of freedom so he can go to sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knows that he knows that he, I, I don't need to repeat that though I'm a huge fan but um yes back in the day the original uh, fire and fury w- was huge and we played most of the battles out of the two scenario books, the East and West. Um, Stones River was a, a particular favourite of mine from the Western book. But uh, we never actually played the Day 2 scenario, the huge that huge scenario in the back of the original book. We played Day 1 numerous times and had some great games, but uh, never got around to playing. I don't think we had enough figures, actually, thinking back. But uh, other than that, I think at the moment, uh, Pickett's Charge, as you've already been, uh, mentioned, is is hugely popular. I've, I've not played it, but I know there's a, a big following for it, as well as um, Guns at Gettysburg. Uh, oh, which Guns is, at Gettysburg. That's a game I have not played, actually. Yeah, it's the um, it's it's also by Dave Brown, but uh, based on the General de Brigade um, sort of game skeleton, I guess. Um, I, I haven't played it myself, but I, I know there's a couple of guys down at the club that are big fans of Guns at Gettysburg. Um, and also back in the day, I played a lot of Johnny Reb, mm-hmm. um, which I, I agree with you, Tony. It's not my cup of tea, but um, I think it must have been the second American Civil War rule set that I moved on to after a set called Circa 1863 by Tabletop Games. Now, that is an old rule set, and... Uh, it's one of those rule sets where you've got pages of modifiers just to <laughs> shoot one volley. That, uh, yes. uh, and a degree in maths helps. But um, 
Yeah, I, I, th I think for the smaller scale games, uh, even smaller than Regiment, then Sharp's uh, Sharp Practice is very popular as well. But that's another that's, one that's, by Brown, isn't it? Uh, well, you know, it's the Two Fat Lardies, so it's it's by the same print uh, by the same publishing oh, okay. company. But um, that's that's a, scale, a level that I I don't really go down to, to be honest. Uh, we don't lower ourselves to that either, Sean. It's okay. No, <laughs> I would never debase myself that way. <laughs> yes, my uh, my six mil Americans of War collection, which was in, entirely inspired by you guys. Uh, sits very proudly on the shelf behind me, um, and I shall uh, hopefully have many, many games ahead of me uh, to, to use that for. Well, which side are you going to play, Sean? When you when you play the whole battle, which side are you going to be on? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm as much as I feel like I criticise Lee, um, I'd be uh, I'd be taking his part. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I and I, Greg and I have talked about this elsewhere. Part of the fascination with Gettysburg and playing Lee, I, I don't need to play Mead. Mead wins. I don't. I, but Lee, because he loses and because he has this legendary status and he loses, if I win as Lee at Gettysburg, am I not the greatest miniature wargaming general? <laughs> well, I, I, have, I have very similar thoughts, Tony. We're on, a, on the same wavelength there, because exactly. uh, if, you, if you play Mead, then there's only one way to go, isn't it? Down, because exactly. you really uh, if, I can only make the, things worse. Yes, exactly. So you can, uh, if you take the place of uh, General Lee, then uh, it, it's all roads upwards. Although, obviously, uh, I know that Greg's got a sour taste in his mouth after the uh, <laughs> the game in the headquarters. No, but you, didn't you blame? Didn't you blame the uh, the people who were partaking in the command decisions? They oh. issued us terrible <laughs> orders, absolutely <laughs> terrible orders. But I would like to state, Sean, for the record. <laughs> that my boys and I did take Cemetery Hill in that game. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> you did, sir. You did, sir. Yeah. Although uh, there was only one person dressing up, I, I seem to remember. That's right. That's right. That's, <laughs> that is that is Steve's speciality. Yes. yes wait it, it till you see the video of him in his Marlena Dietrich costume. Oh, oh wait, that was just for the club, wasn't it? My bad. On that note. I'll send you my uh, cell phone number and you can uh, send it over <laughs> on WhatsApp. <laughs> and Sean, if you ever do get that opportunity to come and see Gettysburg, you absolutely must come and game with us. I don't care what day of the week it is. I will take off work. We'll game. We'll have a drink. Yeah. It, it's, it's an absolute must. It's, it's a life goal of, of mine, uh, Tony, to come and visit that wonderful clubhouse of yours and uh, maybe Greg could uh, host a, a Civil War game for me and uh, I, I could try and right the wrongs of history. We look forward to having you, Sean. And we are Thank very you. glad that you are back with what we're going to call season three of the yes. uh, of the podcast. I, I think it's great that you're going to branch out and do a little more than just six mil, even though yeah. it's certainly a favorite scale of mine. Uh, well, it's the best scale. Absolutely. It, it is. It is. If I had to pick a scale, that would be the scale. But, uh, yes. but it's good to explore 
it's good to explore some of the other stuff. And I, and I don't think your focus on six mil is what ever made the podcast. You know, you, you being a, a good host and a good interviewer is, you know, that's what makes this podcast fun to listen to for people. Absolutely. That, that's very kind guys. And, uh, I'll, I'll throw the thanks right back at you for, uh, once again, for spending the time with me, uh, this evening to uh, record what has been a very enjoyable episode and, uh, back in the saddle for me, uh, with God's own scales. So, uh, until next time, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time and, uh, we'll see you on the other side. Thank you, sir. Be well. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thanks, Sean. Can't wait to see what you have coming up next. Don't cry, don't cry, there's a silver lining in the sky.